Welcome to Musicians Versus the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith. We here at Musicians Versus the World are taking this week off to spend the holidays with family. But before I finish this year of our program, I wanted to say to each of you, our listeners, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening and supporting our show. We have read every single email and message that has come along to us, and we have appreciated the suggestions for topics and guests that have come from you, our listeners. I have also been extremely humbled by the messages of support and appreciation that we've received from people, telling us that a certain topic has resonated with them or that they've heard something on the program that has helped them. This is truly heartwarming for me because education and support and a place where people can learn and grow as musicians and as people is the entire reason for this podcast. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening and for reaching out and letting us know your thoughts and helping us to be better. As we have a couple of minutes here together at the end of the year, it's always fun to take a look back at some of the amazing guests and conversations we've had over the past 12 months. Now, it seems that many musicians started this year, myself included, with hesitations and some unexpected challenges adjusting back into quote-unquote normal post-COVID life. And so because of this, many of our earlier episodes focused on self-care and mindfulness and mental health when deciding on the post-COVID path that we as musicians had to take. You can hear this in our episodes, What Can Musicians Learn from Athletes, Finding Strength and Vulnerability, and Mindfulness for Musicians. But having this time to think mm -hmm. and realize all of the things that they don't like about right. the way that their life was and not sure how they want to you know, go about going forward. But at the same time, it's it's what you said. Things are going back to the way they were. So, right. or, you know, orchestras are picking up exactly where they left off right. and, and things are restarting. But I think that people lost their momentum a little bit. Yes. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because there could be a way to see how to get it back in a way that is more aligned. And it's not even just having sustained injuries, but one of the things that's coming up in this research idea is not only do you have an injury, but how impactful is it to your ability to practice and perform? And so that statistic, uh, it's from the Fishbein study in the 1980s. It's the really the only and for the first large scale um, study on symphony and orchestra musicians. And 82% said, I have an injury and 76% of those said it like severely affects my ability to practice and perform. So, um, yeah, that's the biggest thing. It's just knowing that like, it's not, it's okay to not be okay. Um, and then it's okay to ask for help if you need it and you don't have to like swallow all the things that are going on. You can externalize them and get help and get medication or get whatever you need to get. It's just going to make you feel better. And I think that's a that's an important thing. We also looked at career opportunities for musicians that you may not have thought much about, or maybe you had heard about, but never really thought was an option for you. And we talked about those along with the importance of knowing yourself, understanding your own strengths, and your role in collaboration. And we talked about these subjects in Win Your Job and Know Your Job, 
life in the Marine Band. Choir teachers are awesome, behind the score and in the mix. As I got older, I had more friends who were becoming members of other military bands. And especially in light of the pandemic, it was only until then I realized that this is a very secure and stable position, especially yeah. to perform music. And in this country, in the United States, it's like the only sort of state-sponsored musical groups, which is more of a norm in Europe versus mm. here. So I think it is an option that more musicians should know about when they're in school. If you want to make a difference in a teenager's life that's lasting, that's in many cases is much needed, then yeah, you can make a good living as an educator. You won't make a lot of money. But you can have great experiences. You can touch kids' lives. You can, you can make a difference. As an orchestral player, it's your job to fit into the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And that starts with fitting in and blending with your stand partner, which then translates into blending into your section. And hopefully you're working towards not can I stick out and play the loudest in this section, but can I fit in with the other voices so that we sound like one cohesive unit. Mm -hmm. But then you translate that to the next step, which is the whole orchestra. How does our entire section with one voice fit into the whole orchestra? So your role is really one of learning how to adapt to everything that's happening around you. And it's less about you having an individual voice and your individual musicianship shining through oh yeah with a band you're holding the instrument in your hands and rehearsing with a film and tv you're looking at the picture um you're scoring the picture with a band you're playing in front of an audience hopefully with uh with, a, with scoring the picture you know it's a different kind of performance but it's not in front of an audience that hopefully again hopefully will come later both are intensely collaborative though and, and they're collaborative in, in ways that intersect. It always sort of surprised me. Um, collaborating is something that I love to do. I love it. And, and um, I love the energy that comes from another person bringing in an idea. And in the case of Dexter, that could, that could be the producers who all had really great ideas and specific ideas about the score for Dexter New Blood. With a band, you know, I'm thinking of like Fred, like wanting the in for Love Shack, like the intro, like a Motown intro and a party track, you know, just just working on things, coming up with ideas. Being in a band is priceless when it's working. Something that I particularly found interesting this year was the power of music in the realm of social and political change and how music really opens our eyes to our own society and our own culture and our own humanity. And you can hear this in musicians from the Gilded Age of China, when music and politics meet, performing for others, music for social change, and beyond bossa nova. I think that there's something deeply human about the, our ability to criticize others <laughs> and, and our inability to look inward, to evaluate ourselves and our history. And I think that applies to not just humans, but entire societies, right? It's very mm -hmm. easy to look externally to criticize 
um, other cultures or other histories. And it's very difficult to evaluate inwardly because we are we are blind to our own weaknesses. We yeah. are blind to Oh, well, we just don't know. You know, the I remember one of my teachers once said the worst thing about being deceived is you don't know that you are deceived. You know, mm-hmm. the worst thing about having a weakness is you don't realize that you have that weakness. I think that same thing applies. And so what applies on the human level applies on a cultural level. It's easy for us to look at other cultures and say, oh, we see their deficiencies, mm-hmm. but it's difficult for us to evaluate our own history and realize, oh, wait, we might have had the same deficiencies once upon a time. Well, I think that the question of music and politics is one that has long been a subject for concern and consideration. And Dangerous Melodies was published a couple of years ago. It was obviously a a history which explored that subject. I didn't think that it would yet again become so so relevant. Um, And it's certainly something that I think uh, musicians and people involved in in the arts will want to be thinking about. The the issue of Valery Gergiev, of course, and his relationship with Putin has become, has been scrutinized quite carefully and closely, in fact, over a number of years, but particularly in recent weeks. And I think it's the kind of issue that we need to give some thought to and that musicians and artists generally might wish to think about. It certainly is, um, as I said, something that has come to the fore in recent weeks. As they're applauding and they're, they're giving me the standing ovation, hmm. I turn around and I look and there's this sea of white faces. Mm-hmm. It makes an impression. The line in this We Met at the Symphony, you know, it's amidst 2,499 white faces. That's where that comes from. Oh. So that's why it, you know, has that feel to it because these are experiences and some of them are uncomfortable. Yeah. And um, you have to smile anyway. Mm -hmm. And I have to, in order to succeed, in order to exist in concert music world, in an opera world, I have to be used to being usually the only Black person in the room. If there Mm -hmm. are other Black people, usually I've brought them. And it's beginning to change. And a lot of this, uh, certainly with my pieces, as I'm doing my composer residency type of things, seeing much more of the community come out. And it's hopeful. Um, I believe in the power of of music to affect social change. I, Mm -hmm. I don't understand racism. I don't understand misogyny. I don't understand any kind of xenophobia or homophobia. And if you look at people who are artists, the vast majority of them, anecdotally from my point of view, are screwed up by their childhood because of those reasons I just listed. And they find ways to transcend it and overcome it. And I'm sure in your own life, you know, plenty of people that use art as a way to express when they can express in the normal, the normal mores of our society. So I do think that that will be one of the reasons why we should listen to composers of, you know, underrepresented composers, because of their struggles are being said, they're being told through their music. And as we listen to their music, we'll listen to their struggles as well, you know, and then we're being more connected to ourselves and other people and, you know, more human, I would say that. 
And finally, as school came around, we had a series on neurodiversity in musicians. And you can see that in our Musicians and ADHD episode, as well as reading music. The one that was unique just to people with ADHD is reframing. And I know it's a very um, popular buzzword in, in therapy, but the whole idea of just reinterpreting your ADHD experience as something positive, you know, there's no question that you have weaknesses. Okay. Everybody does. Okay. But you are really able to get to the point where you use your ADHD for good. You know, you realize that, I have a lot of energy and I haven't even had that much coffee today, or I know how to like say yes to this gig and I'm going to show up and I can jump in because I have all the adrenaline in the world. So it's really just learning how to make what could be a weakness and what very well is a weakness. A lot of the times just into something that you can really just harness for good and really enhance your career. That connection was really made for me that they were missing some of those fundamental reading skills for whatever reason. Um, so just trying to connect the dots for them and and not making them feel like they had that there was something wrong with them, that they had missed out. It's no, no fault of yeah. their own. It was just for whatever reason, either didn't retain for them, didn't connect or was actually missing. So it didn't matter what the case was. It was just that we if we could solve it and and help right. them, that's the important thing. So. So it's been an absolutely wonderful year for Musicians Versus the World. I have learned an incredible amount about so many topics that I really hadn't thought much about. But now that I know them, they have made me a better musician and just kind of a better human being. And it's also opened my eyes to new research and new news that has come out about the music world. And so I have three little updates that I want to share with you that I found really interesting as we finish up this year. Our first update comes from our most recent interview with producer, mixing engineer, musician, and composer, Patrick Deravaz. In that episode, he mentioned that when he was mixing the score to Dexter Newblood, he boosted certain frequencies that the audience couldn't necessarily hear, but they could feel. Take a listen. You know that some of, some of those frequencies are going to trigger some emotions yeah. in your body. I mean, just like, like you have like a line, for example, on the cello. Uh, that's gonna, it's gonna be in a certain frequencies. Mm -hmm. It's gonna talk to your heart yeah. more than uh, more than your brain. You play the same line on the flute or on a, on the violin, but it's gonna be a different register, and it's gonna trigger certain reaction in your brain instead of your heart. Yeah. Oh, that's true. So you you work, you learn to to work with that. I, I mean, for me as a composer and uh, and mixer and engineer. I learned how to work with this, uh, this uh, different frequency, different emotion, and different way the body reacts. Now, neuroscientist Daniel Cameron from the McMaster Live Lab, which is a unique research theater, recently released a study in the journal Current Biology that showed that bursts of low-frequency bass during a concert made dancing volunteers move their body 12% more than usual. In their experiment, volunteers attended a concert where VLF, or very low frequency speakers, were turned on and off every two and a half minutes to see how the volunteers reacted when the low frequencies were boosted compared to when they were off. The volunteers moved and danced 12% more when the VLF speakers were on, even though that the frequencies were so low, they couldn't audibly hear them. 
Cameron goes on to explain that everything from our inner ear and vestibular system to even our skin are receptive to these vibrations, especially low-frequency sound. So when researchers pulse this low-frequency sound and these, these lower frequencies, the test subjects' bodies reacted to it. Now, this next update wasn't exactly in 2022, but it was back in October 2021 in our episode, Surprise, I Bet You Didn't Expect That. We looked at some research on how listening to Mozart's Sonata in D major for two pianos reduced the occurrence of interictal epileptiform discharges, these brainwave spikes that happen sporadically between seizures in people with epilepsy. And the researchers found that listening to the Mozart Sonata reduced the number of these IEDs and its effect was especially pronounced in the part of the brain where emotional responses are regulated. So it was really interesting, and I loved learning about that. Well, a new study came out back in August this year that this same exact musical piece also has a calming effect on stressed-out dogs. In the study from Queen's University, Belfast, in Northern Ireland, which was published in the journal Applied Animal Behavior Science, listening to the Mozart Sonata had a more calming effect on dogs whose owners had left the room than those who were listening to an audiobook recording or those who were left in silence. Now, considering that separation anxiety accounts for 10 to 20% of all behavioral issues in dogs and 50% of behavioral issues in senior dogs, playing a little Mozart when you leave the room may be worth a try. Now, our final update for this year comes from our conversation with Jenny Boster about female composers. I think that's so important to know that, A, there was tons of women composing through every era of music. And B, like their music is incredible. Um, and just like the men, you know, some will be more incredible than others. But, you know, I've had comments of people that say, you know, every every piece I've listened to by women is just it's just not very good. And it's and it's just the harmonies are off. And so that I was like, no, that is so not true. And that fueled me to put together this list of piece, of recommended pieces by women. And I sent that out as part of the thing too, because I'm like, there are so many gorgeous works by women. And um, once you start, once you start discovering them, you, you see that, oh yeah. So these are, these are just as beautiful as the works that we have grown up listening to. And it's important that we start to hear them as well. I wanted to do an update on this because we're in a new symphonic season. We have started the 2022-2023 season, and I thought it would be interesting to look to see how classical music is changing. Are we becoming more diverse? Are we hearing from new composers? Are we broadening our audiences? Well, let's find out. According to the Women's Philharmonic Advocacy Group Annual Repertoire Report, in the top 21 ensembles in the United States, 281 composers will be represented in the 2022-2023 season. Of those composers, 60 are women, meaning that overall the number of women composers will comprise of 21% of composers performed this year, and a majority of these women are currently alive and composing. This is a large increase, and it's exciting to know that current composers and living composers are getting the chance to be heard and performed in major symphony halls. But there is a downside. The downside is that though more women are being represented, there are fewer actual pieces written by women being performed. Last season, 15% of works being performed were written by women, 
And this year it has decreased to 14%. So it's not a huge decrease, but it is a decrease. And so that's a little bit, a little bit frustrating. But the Women's Philharmonic Advocacy Group also has noted that virtual concert experiences and more accessible price points have opened up symphonic and classical experiences for a larger audience. And I have seen this in our very own Atlanta Symphony Orchestra because they are offering a digital concert series, including in-depth discussion and family and educational programming. In addition, the Clyburn and Chopin competitions were streamed worldwide, opening their doors to a potentially new audience. And considering that classical music use by creators on YouTube soared 90% in 2022, there's definitely an audience in streaming for classical music. There's definitely an interest in it for people who are seeing this on digital platforms. So hopefully projects such as this continue to bring a variety of music to a younger and a more digital audience. And as you know, I always like to ask my guests for their advice for new musicians when they come on the show. And there is one piece of advice from my interview with Brandon Bascom that didn't make it into his show, but I have been saving it for today because I thought it was such a great quote that he has shared, and I wanted to share it with you today. So I'm going to end this episode with this quote from Brandon Bascom. Another great quote that I wanted to share is by Alan Watts. And this is all over YouTube. You can see many different videos of this. Um, the one that I like the best has New York City in the background while this narration is going on. But I like it because I lived in New York and went to school in New York. And He says, what do you desire? What makes you itch? What sort of a situation would you like? Let's suppose, I do this often in vocational guidance on, of students. They come to me and say, well, we're getting out of college and we haven't the faintest idea of what we want to do. So I always ask the question, what would you like to do if money were no object? How would you really enjoy spending your life? Well, it's so amazing as a result of our kind of educational system. Crowds of students say, well, we'd like to be painters. We'd like to be poets. We'd like to be writers. But as everybody knows, you can't earn any money that way. Or another person says, well, I'd like to live an out-of-doors life and ride horses. I, I said, you want to teach in a writing school? Let's go through with it. What do you want to do? When we finally get down to something, which the individual says he really wants to do, I will say to him, you do that and forget the money. Because if you say that getting the money is the most important thing, you will spend your life completely wasting your time. You'll be doing things you don't like doing in order to go on living. That is to go on doing things you don't like doing, which is stupid. Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. And after all, if you do really like what you're doing, it doesn't matter what it is. You can eventually become a master of it. The only way to become a master of something, to be really with it. And then you'll be able to get a good fee for whatever it is. So don't worry too much. And so therefore, it's so important to consider this question, what do I desire? So I like this quote because I found it to be true. If you can become a master of it, people will pay your fee for whatever it is. And don't worry about the money. Do what you desire. Do what brings you joy. Well, that's it, everyone. Thank you for a wonderful year. Thank you for staying with us as we venture into the varied aspects of music and musician life. 
We'll be back in January with Nicole Ricardo, musician, marketing strategist, and business coach, who will walk us through some musical and business goals to think about in 2023. Until then, have a wonderful holiday season and feel free to reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at frostedlens.com. We may take a little bit longer to get back to you because we will be with family and we'll be celebrating the season, but we will get back to you. Until we meet again, everybody, thank you so much for a wonderful year and have a fantastic happy holidays.